Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. And I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Cheryl Lazowski-Sullivan. Dr. Lazowski is a clinical psychologist specializing in evidence-based interventions and psychological assessments for adults and children. She is trained in public health and using her background in public health policy and administration, Dr. Lazowski and myself developed an external practicum for clinical psychology doctoral students within a large pediatric practice in Southwest Michigan. The external practicum program ran for 10 years and introduced brief interventions for pediatric conditions such as toileting, attention and concentration difficulties, tantrums, headaches, stomach aches, and sleep difficulties. Dr. Lazowski spent three years embedded in pediatric subspecialty care in an integrated model, and currently she is on a multidisciplinary team for cystic fibrosis. Dr. Lazowski has an active private practice. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Cheryl Lazowski-Sullivan. Hey, Cheryl, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm awesome. Coming to you from my closet, as you can see. So this sounds way better there. Um, So I'm going to just hop right in and tell our listeners how you and I got started. Basically, at some point in a fit of craziness, I decided that I really loved behavioral health and I was just going to do that. Little did I know how overwhelming it was. And I think on a couple of occasions, I found myself sitting on the floor sobbing because I just was so overwhelmed and not sure how to do that well. And a friend of mine said, you should call somebody in the psychology department and see if a graduate student could help you. And I got your name and number and here we are gosh, almost 10 years later. So yep, it was kismet. Absolutely. So talk a little bit about you and your journey, and then we'll venture off into the world of therapy. Great. Well, thanks for having me. My background really starts in public health. My my undergrad degree was in psychology, and uh, that started with my journey with childhood cancer. I was diagnosed at 18 at the University of Michigan with Hodgkin's disease. Um, I was fortunate enough just to get radiation therapy back in my home and return to University of Michigan, not feeling quite the same as I did before. So I had an inkling that cancer changes you in physical ways and psychosocial ways. And that led me to some really wonderful research and a great undergraduate advisor, Mark Chapler, who's written a lot on families of children with cancer. And that eventually led me into public health and eventually uh, still wanting to do the clinical work of clinical psychology and discovering how fun it is uh, to work with kids and their families. Complicated, but lots and lots of fun. So I was fortunate enough to find you uh, for my what was called my external practicum. And we put together uh, what we call co-located 
at the, at the hip, integrated behavioral health, and that external practicum lasted 10 years through several students, and we helped a lot of families and kids with a variety of problems, from toileting to tantrums to sleep, how to get a child to sleep at night to assessing for eating disorders, ADHD, the whole gamut of what you would see in a pediatric practice. So um, I'm eternally grateful to you for that opportunity. It really shaped the type of work that I do today. Well, ditto on the gratitude. So um, I I think one of the things that was really eye-opening to me was that the road to a PhD is extraordinarily long. And as long as a residency, which blew me away how much that you guys have to do, I think the dissertation is just so challenging and amazing. I was able to sit on a dissertation committee for a couple of the students, so I was able to see that. Wanted to talk a little bit about uh, how, you know, I think when physicians think, you know, gee, we need some help here, and this is really kind of out of the purview of the medical field. I mean, I think we do things that are therapeutic, but we're not therapists, although I sometimes feel like I'm one. And we refer someone to a therapist. That can mean lots of different things because therapists include social workers, um, counseling psychology, clinical psychologists, um, and sometimes others. And is there a difference in the training that would make us choose one type of therapist over the other? I think part of the time it's just relationships that we have with people that we know engage well with family. So maybe you can explain just a little bit some of the differences and why we might choose one type of therapy over another. That is a $6 million question. And let me just say that the origins of the welfare system and the mental health system the history of the development of mental health in the United States is the reason for this patchwork that we have. Of course, when we're talking about medications, we look to our pediatrician partners, we look to our internal medicine partners on the adult side, and we look to our psychiatry partners to work on medication issues, as well as developmental pediatricians. We're fortunate enough in our area to have a developmental pediatrician. Um, But getting more towards mental health professionals. Of course, the clinical psychologists and the masters of social work are the two that you're most likely to see in an integrated model um, in integrated behavioral health because we're most trained in uh, the medical model and delivering care within a medical system. And most notably, someone who's somewhat trained as a pediatric psychologist. And I can explain a little more what that is. But um, it really is the history. Uh, My son and I have actually written a chapter on the history of the development of mental health as a discipline and why there's so many different types of therapists. I think it's confusing, don't you? I think it's really confusing to pediatricians to say what, what are who's out there. Now, licensed professional counselors are masters prepared. There are, of course, masters social workers. In the state of Michigan, there are also limited licensed psychologists who, by licensure, have to have supervision with a licensed psychologist. 
Um, and then there are a variety of other things emerging, health coaches, um, life coaches. I think if you're talking, certainly if you're talking about assessment needs, you're probably going to want to refer to a licensed psychologist. And when We're you say that, you, you mean somebody with, typically has a PhD because they're trained in that typically, kind of assessment? Typically, unless, uh, yeah, typically, but sometimes licensed psychologists, for example, will also employ um, limited licensed psychologists or licensed professional counselors to, to work on some of those cases, those assessments together. Um, you want to look at what someone's specializing in. Um, eating disorders, for example, is a specialization. Now, I mean eating disorders, not feeding problems in childhood, but suspected eating disorders, teen, adult. You want to look at what someone's specializing in as well. I happen to specialize in behavioral therapies, toileting, um, parenting, tantrums, sleep problems, very straightforward behavior therapies. There are great social workers uh, in our community that specialize in eating disorders. ADHD, not just a med, um, the major MTS studies show that not only should we be medicating children if that's the way to go with ADHD, but we should also be doing that behavioral therapy that helps many people with ADHD be able to focus and concentrate utilizing some behavioral techniques. So there's a variety of therapists out there and I think the one way to look at things is what is the need, what do you think the needs are to start with and what, do, what are people specializing in and also I think personally and you know this about me is communicating back with the referral source. That's the most basic level of integrated behavioral health so that we can have a dialogue and we, and it can be facts, it can be phone calls, it can be whatever the physician prefers, um, but it's important for all treating partners to know what's going on. And there is, I think, this idea of um, collaboration that is really important. You mentioned a couple of other things that were, I think, significant. One is that the type of specialty. So for example, we had a previous episode about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, and that really is a, a specific area. Substance use, family, that kind of thing. You want to look for someone that can do that well, and th that has that specific training. The other thing you were talking about with the, when you were talking about ADHD and behavior training is there was a recent AAP kind of a guideline and one of the things they talked about is often parents of school-age kids really prefer trying the behavioral health yes. route first before medication and that oftentimes it's that combination particularly in the school-age kids as they get older that behavioral stuff is not at least according to this report wasn't as marked as for adolescents as it was for that yes. school-age kid. So, you know, again, I think that that's important. And I, I do believe that pediatricians like having behavioral health support so that we're not just relying on medication only. I, and, and there's often all these comorbidities. Beside, you know, the, t the opportunity that it's just straightforward ADHD, 
those are easy, but they're not they're not easy to come by. I mean, most they're of not the time, common. No, yeah. there's anxiety, there's mood, there's you know family trauma, there's other stuff. So I think having a therapist that can can sort that out is, is really helpful. Maybe you can talk just a little bit about the what I call the therapy uh, alphabet soup and why it might be helpful for us to understand a little bit about them. I mean, obviously, there are chapters of books written on this, but right. so I had a list, uh, CBT, DBT, ACT, PCIT, IPT, and TIF. So I know that's a lot, Let's but... Let's start at the beginning. Um, yeah, CBT. Cognitive behavior therapy is what CBT is. Cognitive is just a fancy word for thinking, Behavior is anything you can see as well as thoughts. So CBT begins therapy at, at thinking and behaving. Most often we think of therapy as how does that make you feel? And it's not as though it's not important, but that's not the starting point in CBT. The starting point is the way in which a person is thinking. A great example of that is anxiety. We're reading someone else's mind and often we're wrong. That person is thinking that I must be really dumb. Well, that person's probably, you know, and certainly I'm moving in fast forward, but uh, we spend a lot of time with that thought, getting to the automatic thoughts that people have and countering those automatic thoughts with an opposite believable thought. And that takes time because people are not always aware of their thoughts. And then convincing them that we might be able to change our thinking by repeating to us a counter thought. Um, now the behavior piece, uh, keeping my example of anxiety, is we often avoid things. We refuse to go to school. We have difficulty get starting homework. A number of things. Um, and eventually what we do in cognitive behavior therapy for anxiety, as an example, is we uh, ask people eventually with some of the tools we help them build, anxiety reducing tools like the thought restructuring, and um, helping them learn how to create a relaxation response in themselves is then attack those things that they are afraid of. And we don't do that quickly or easily or until they're ready. But that's, that's a basic primer of cognitive behavior therapy. Cognitive behavior therapy is, has been tested for many years. It's been dismantled. It has been applied to many different disorders. And I just want to mention the Cochrane Review um, Library is an excellent tool that therapists should be looking at to know, is this an evidence-based treatment? The Cochrane Review is a, is a large uh, data set specific to healthcare to help us uh, weed through all of the journal articles that are out there and help guide clinicians in a quicker, faster way. So is CBT considered an efficacious treatment 
for this particular disorder. Switching to... Let me just make one... Yep, just one comment about CBT. So, I mean, just from a, a personal perspective, having had years and years of anxiety... I think the most helpful thing a therapist ever said to me was, you're going to always have these anxious thoughts. You can't control that they pop into your head, but what you can control is what you do about them. And I frequently frame that for kids, like, you know, the thought that I'm going to flunk this test and the questioning, have you ever flunked a test? You know, these are straight A students. Have you ever flunked a test? Well, you know, how likely it is that you're going to flunk a test? And then kind of work through that just in brief. And I do think there are some strategies like teaching kids paced breathing or the five senses, you know, those those things to help them unhook from, I call it the worry, the worry go round. So, that, so that the worry juice isn't going to your your head and making you have a headache or your stomach making you have a stomach ache. So I, I do think that there are some pieces of CBT that physicians can use and probably do use and just don't know that's what we're doing. Right. Excellent point. I have a sign in my in my office that says, don't believe everything you think. <laughs> I love that. Wow. Right? That takes a minute to think, you know, to think about it. It takes a couple iterations of just because a thought pops in your head doesn't mean you have to believe it. Uh, that's a really good point. Um, I think it's important with anxiety specifically to know how anxious is this kiddo, um, and that requires some assessment. That's the first thing I always do because we may need medication on board. I can't overcome physiology. I've tried. It doesn't work. You can't talk somebody out of out of their wiring. And I often tell kids, too, and families about going to a therapist. It's not something is uh, like you're crazy, but right. this is somebody that can help coach you because you have these thoughts and you right. respond to them in a way that's making you not feel good. And you don't have to experience it that way. But, you know, like playing soccer, you don't just go out and kick the ball around. You have somebody helping you direct that, and it takes practice. So you need somebody to coach you through it, not to diminish the role of a psychologist or a social worker, but to help explain it to family, sell it, I guess. Absolutely. You make a really good point. And if we think about what can a pediatrician do in that moment in the office, Kind of, I think two things. One is, accept that the worries are real. A lot of times parents will come in and want to know, is this real? Is the pain real? Is the anxiety real? Well, it's real if the child's experiencing it. And if you could do us a favor with our families to help squash some of that kind of judgment, if you will, from the parent to try and decide what's real and what isn't real. It's all real if it's a felt experience. That's number one. And number two is listen and hear what the child is saying. Because number one, and most pediatricians I know do that, number one, you have just partnered with the child. And if you partner with a child, you bring along the parent. Because the child will say, well, I want to go see Dr. Gugino. Because Dr. Gugino listens and has felt experience and will comment and say, that must be hard for you. Take the fix, I guess, as a, as a subcategory under that one is, take the fix-it hat off for a minute. 
and just hear what the patient is telling you, both in terms of trauma, in terms of anxiety, in terms of, you know, it's, it is certainly excellent patient care, but I also know that pediatricians are pushed to the max on the amount of time they get with their patients. And I'm lucky enough to get an hour um, each week or each interval that I see them. So I think those are a couple of little pearls that might really help with the mental health piece. There Um, are some things that I see with parents oftentimes like, I don't understand why they're worried about this because, you know, they they live in a safe home, you know, and trying to talk kids out of it. And I often say that's the crux of anxiety disorders they're not always based in reality i mean if the tiger's chasing you and you're scared about it that's not anxiety but for someone who's believing there's a tiger in the room and there is you know it's not possible right you know their experience is still real it's just the reality is different and you can't talk them out of it absolutely I wish that was the case because then that would be easy, but then it wouldn't be a disorder, right? I mean, then you don't have anxiety. You anxiety makes no sense. No, and I think people—it's like with OCD, you know, which I don't think is that typical. Although I do think intrusive thoughts and and behaviors are frequent. Yeah, but. I think by definition, people with OCD know that what they're doing is ridiculous and makes no sense, but they can't help it. Which again it's a dysfunction and it's a disorder and I mean the fact that I love my dishes to fit exactly perfectly in the dishwasher you know I mean it's not going to ruin the world not a disorder no but it is bothersome and I like it better when it happens but that's not OCD right that's but it is you know a thought that's you know there are people that have intrusive thoughts sometimes scary and sometimes just annoying Absolutely. I think that adds insult to injury with the anxiety disorders. And I might note that make sure if if you suspect anxiety of any sort of which OCD is one, please make sure that you're referring to someone who's doing evidence-based practice. Talking about anxiety doesn't fix anxiety. It doesn't. Yeah, it took me it took me a lot of different therapists to finally get to somebody that could help me do some actual things that were were effective so that it finally yes. unhinged it a little bit. I think another type of therapy that I've seen the doctoral students that we had in the office use that I do think there are bits and pieces kind of like motivational interviewing is a, or motivational intervention is some of the ACT therapy, the activation. Can you yeah. talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, ACT is what we call a third wave behavior therapy. And ACT is very experiential. And we actually have the person experience it utilizing small vignettes, if you will. Um, it's a bit hard to explain, but it helps a person quickly get out of their mind and into what they're doing. Um, The most notable one is about, uh, is used with a clipboard. And um, again, hard to explain, I wish I could show you. Um, But but the 
it's very powerful in the session to have the person have the clipboard um, represent their worries and their concerns or their anger, if you will, sometimes. And we have the the patient, even a even a teen, push against the clipboard, and then talk to us about how difficult is is it to see me to be present in this moment when you're pushing against the clipboard and then we move the clipboard to a different position and ask them to uh, sit with sit with their anger or their anxiety in front of them and does that feel different and can you interact with me in an easier way if you set the clipboard the the metaphorical anxiety or anger down and then we ask them to move the clipboard over to the other seat and what is that like for them so it's very experiential and there's a whole variety of vignettes that instead of talking about putting setting your anxiety or anger aside you actually experience it and it can be very powerful for people let me just point out too that there are lots of other techniques that may never have been evaluated in a randomized controlled trial I will often pull in the gestalt empty chair if your mother were sitting there what would you say to you know so we're often the different types of therapies that exist um, we're using different words to describe a similar thing but very different techniques now cognitive and behavioral therapy are very conducive to children and talk therapy is not is is not terribly effective although we do have to talk to do therapy we're stuck with the English language or whatever language we speak so that's the conduit by which we we do these things but we should always be firmly founded in a case conceptualization of what's going on and know what technique that we're using to to move forward I might also point out real quickly that the cognitive and cognitive behavior therapy and dialectical behavior therapy we don't always have to know the reason you know we're we've been entrenched in this Frazier kind of um, if you're old enough to remember Frazier um, a psychiatrist who talks about feelings and we don't we don't always have to know the reason yes for many people we have to go back to childhood we have to help them understand but often more often than not we don't have to know the why we just need to fix the problem and there's, I, saw, I saw another statement too it was similar that you know the pediatrician doesn't necessarily need to know the diagnosis to respond to the symptoms and be therapeutic I wanted to go back to something that I learned from one of the doctoral students and I don't know if it fits act or not or okay. but I'll tell you what I've I took away from them and I'm not sure what the name of it is but so a patient with depression and they don't really want to do anything and I remember uh, Monica one of our students showing yeah. this tornado kind of thing about sort of the spiral down and you're at the bottom and yeah. in order to feel better you got to get to the top and yeah. 
laying in bed is not going to move the needle, but one of the things we know that does is movement. So actually, yep. you know, getting outside or going for a walk or doing something can move you up the spiral even when you don't want to. And, you know, working through with the patient what, you know, if you could do a body movement, what would it be? Going for a walk. How likely is that for that to happen? How soon can it happen? So I've used that like, um, okay, can you said you'd like to go for a walk. When would you like to do that? So today's Thursday. Would, you know, Friday work, Saturday? About what time? So I've tried to pin them down, and then I have them respond to me in my chart, so in the portal, and just say, could you just fill me in if you were able to do it? Some kids do, but and some kids don't. But um, I had one kid recently that needed to make amends with someone and really took a long time. But when they were able to do that, it was I was so excited for them. Yes. And we we'd like push like, when can you do it? You know, not just sort of this ethereal. Yeah, I'll do that sometime. But and, and I think that's sort of motivational intervention as well. I, I don't know. Do I have that wrong? Yeah. I, I think what you're talking about is, uh, yeah, Monica used a, an act metaphor, and the I mentioned the dismantling study of cognitive behavior therapy. Well, there's some evidence that behavioral activation, planning and engaging, like you said, uh, and equally as important, is having them say what they might be willing to do. Because if you just said, well, I think you should take a walk. Why don't you take a walk? That's not going to work. They have to say, what is a pleasant thing that you might be willing to do? And then you pin them down on a time and a day. You don't, and anybody who does behavior change work, you know, has from weight management to working out to, uh, to you know, um, checking your sugars if you're diabetic. You have to have specific planning. And that's what you did. Very good job. You're a behavior therapist. <laughs> well, I, I, I listen well. And I, you know, seeing that in practice made a really big difference. And it's kind of fun, actually. It is a and lot I found during COVID, one of the biggest problems is kids sleep. It's a mess. And it in effect, I mean, I've had kids that are up till 4 a.m., sleep till 4, and I, we have to talk about, you know, you're not a nocturnal animal, and this is messing with your brain, and you feel crappy, and you're not performing well. I get that you want to just lay in bed and play video games all night, but let's talk about that. What are you willing to do? Would you be willing to try to go to bed at 2? Um, could you get up earlier? What could we work on first? So I literally kind of write prescriptions for Let's talk about what we're going to do with sleep. There was a really cool YouTube that came out at the very beginning of the whole COVID pandemic um, by Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score on Trauma. And he was talking about how to take care of yourself during the pandemic. It was back in March. And he went through seven things to do to feel better. And that was sleep, routine eating, movement, socialization with others in whatever way, shape, or form that looked like, family time, creativity, 
and then spirituality, which could mean prayer, it could mean meditation, it could mean many things. And he was talking about adults, but I've often focused on at least the first three, and that's yeah. sleep and normal meal or you know routine 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 and then movement like you don't have to go and run but can you get outside and and look up at the trees for two minutes well another way to think about that is the old YMCA saying mind body spirit are you taking care of your mind are you taking care of your body are you taking care of your spirit and maybe just start with one right all right yeah, I, I go with sleep. Are you feeding yourself? Are you sleeping? Yeah. Yeah, I've this the sleep has been so striking. The yes. abnormalities Great. in sleep and it's so erratic and I think now that some kids are back in some sort of school structure, whether it's virtual or hybrid or all in person, that has helped. But on the days when they're not in person, and they're having to do this stuff on their own, it, uh, they're really struggling. It's very rough, and parents are really frustrated and and having difficulty if they're also having to work and can't be home helping their child keep a structure and a schedule. Uh, they're definitely struggling. We're seeing a lot. We're, all of my colleagues are seeing a great rise in anxiety. Um, and more people seeking therapy. We're, we're all very, very full. And we're grateful that you can do this virtually because that was one of the, I think, yes. upsides of the pandemic is that we're all doing, I mean, you and I are doing this Zoom. Uh, you know, who knew that that yeah. would be possible? Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about integrated health a little more formally because you and I have been talking about this for a long time and you know, my description is that it's not the therapist down the hall, which would be co-located, yes. but this is someone, I mean, at its best, you and I were together and I would have a patient that was struggling with, say, school avoidance. And I could say, you know what, I have a, I have a colleague that works right here with me who does behavioral health. And would it be okay if she came in because she might have some really great ideas? And generally they would say, sure. And then I would grab you and I would say, you know, this is Cheryl. And and then I could say, I'm going to let you guys chat for a little bit. And I could step out and go on to my next patient. And then you could give the patient some, you know, some strategies and get Absolutely. an assessment. And then you might even see them for six to eight sessions that were brief. These were not the typical, I think, ideally about 30 minutes with a goal of a short number of appointments so this isn't like a year-long therapy and that the patient sees you as an extension of me and that they were much more likely to follow through as opposed to if I make a referral to a therapist I don't know the numbers are pretty dismal about 70 percent of them won't go That's so right. I think we're we often think well I made the referral to a therapist so my job's done yeah that doesn't always work so can you, is that kind of how you experienced it with me? I called Absolutely. it at the at the hip. At the hip, curbside. It's very effective. Uh, it uh, integrated models have been around for a long time. If you look at the history, um, and there are many examples of pediatric psychologists trained and in major centers, and they actually specialize in. Pain, rehab psychology, uh, 
general pediatric. There are some children's hospitals, like uh, notably um, Nemours, um, Children's Ho Hospital of Cincinnati, um, the large centers that have um, psychologists integrated. And increasingly, we're seeing more um, mental health professionals uh, because social workers bring uh, the, these terrific skills of resource allocation too um, and can be trained in some of the brief therapies. Uh, and incidentally, average number of visits to a therapist is only four. So if you're integrated into the office, um, six to eight would be a bonus. Um, and that's absolutely true. Referrals for insomnia, referrals for all kinds of things. Um, it, it's difficult to, to get people to come in. We do see across the U.S. that pediatric psychologists are poised and ready and trained. Some of the barriers, though, that keep that are difficult is our the financing mechanism isn't there. And you and I know that the mind you don't have health if you don't have mental health. We have this, you know, dichotomy between the mind and the body, and it's just artificial. It, it it's not real, and I think that makes the job for pediatricians and primary practice very, very difficult. I've been lucky enough to be just right there at the hip, not only in a pediatric practice, but available to the staff at a hospital, available to a specialty practice, and it is terrific. You, it's so effective. We're increasingly seeing studies that it saves money, but we're taking mental health into the medical practice where it is needed. Um, instead of seeing mental health as a specialty that needs to be referred to like cardiology or gastroenterology, things like, like that. And patients and families are very open to it. They seem very grateful. When you, you can spend 30 minutes on helping a, a parent learn how to deal with a tantrum. In 20 to 30 minutes, I can give them some tips that they can go on after I talk to them about when this happens and how this happens and, you know, sort of what's going on before, what's the behavior, what's happening after. There's lots of, of areas that we can do very brief therapies. Um, we can do assessments for trauma and get them to the right place for trauma assessment and trauma treatment or do some brief therapies to get them started within the pediatric practice. When it, we had doctoral students and then eventually it morphed into a different system with social work being embedded and we have been able to recoup some costs. It, it takes a lot of doing and it's tricky, uh, but I, I'll tell you, when you have a mental health person in your office that is readily acceptable, or acceptable but also accessible, Correct. Right. You don't want to give it up. Once you've had it, you don't want to give it up because right. it changes what you can do so much. And it's such a relief to have someone help you with these tough situations yeah. because it's not on all on us to fix it or to send it out when they don't go. And then they're still coming in saying, you know, I still have stomach aches and I don't want to go to school. 
And we're, you know, and then we don't have to just rely on medication. Well, and you have so many synergies as well. You're face-to-face and you can talk to each other, the physician and the social worker and or the psychologist. You can assess where the the patient is at, what's going on with the parent. Because uh, child therapy and child medicine, (laughs) it necessarily involves the family and particularly the parents. So what's going on for them affects the child. And it kind of takes the the mystery and the stigma out of it when they're there in the office. Yes. You know, oh, it's just, this is just what we do. This is just part of routine care. And particularly when we have some really trying stuff like suicidal ideation, which is, you know, 15% of the kids that we've screened with the you know, the PHQ, yes. have suicidal ideation. Well, what are you going to do with that? I mean, physicians can do a lot, and that's a whole nother topic. But right. to have a mental health professional right there to say, you know what, there's some things that we need to work on because this is really important. I'm going to have one of my team members come in and work on some things. And one of the things is the Stanley Brown intervention. Absolutely. A safety plan, which is activation strategies what are you going to do and it's a collaborative plan that the patient comes up with yeah it's evidence-based so there are just so many things that this kind of team makes a difference and again I think the bottom of it is you and I can then talk about the patient and come up with something that makes sense right then and there and that goes right back to the communication piece that you talked about regardless of whether a therapist is in the office or in their own office, having conversations back and forth and sharing information is critical. If we're in our own silos, the the kid suffers. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, two, two points on that. One is I recently in reading and doing some writing on integrated behavioral health, a, a psychologist, uh, who's written a couple of books on it, said it is not going to happen. Psychologists have been prepared to do this for 50 years, and we are in certain settings. But at large-scale community hospitals in primary care, it is not going to happen until the medical community wants it to happen. We're ready to go, when, and, and many of us are trained. It's medicine that's going to have to say, you know that that thing called the mind? Well, it has this great carrying case we call the skull. And we cannot separate the mind from the brain from the body. And I think that is a great place to wrap up that we need to do this together and you know there's lots of different strategies and techniques and you know we could go into that in detail Um, I am going to include in the show notes some information on integrated behavioral health and um, and you know Cheryl can share some guidebooks on you know what the terminology means what the therapies mean and so we'll put that in there but I think this partnership makes total sense it takes a little time to figure out like how it works but man once you do it it's so much more fun to have a friend to help you with this that knows some things that you don't so I am eternally grateful to you and that our paths crossed and I really appreciate your time today 
Oh, it's been a blast. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. All right, Cheryl, we'll see you soon. I want to thank Cheryl for joining me today. It is so important that we work closely with our mental health professionals. As you and I both know, this is way more than what we can do in that quick office visit, but so important. I think it's important to remember that when we make referrals to therapists, that the follow-through is often problematic with only maybe 30% of patients referred go, and if they do, maybe for four visits. And then they bring the problems back to us because the symptoms are continuing. So that partnership is really important. We talked a little bit about the difference in therapy types and also therapist skill levels and areas of expertise and that it's important for us to know specifically as an example if someone has an eating disorder they really need to see someone that has experience and training in that particular field and the same is true for anxiety disorders OCD do they have training in perinatal mood and anxiety disorders etc so those are things to ask therapists about the different types of therapy we got into a discussion of a couple types and I'll leave descriptions of the others in the show notes cognitive behavioral therapy is probably the one we hear about the most and Cheryl really stressed that it's about thoughts not just emotions and how we can actually challenge some of those thoughts and feel better but you need a coach and someone to help you through that and a therapist who's trained in cognitive behavioral therapy can be that coach activation therapy is really experiential in that the patient comes up with strategies that will work for them and then pin them down about when that's going to happen what that's going to look like We talked a lot about specific areas that this can be effective and with COVID, how sleep has been a major disruptor and the loss of routine. So somehow creating that for patients and working with them and picking a goal like sleep may be a good place to start. We wrapped up talking about integrated behavioral health and the model that you actually have a mental health professional right there in the practice next to you and that you can pull them in and they can help unpack what's going on with a patient and then communicate it back to you. It can be much more effective and the patients will actually come back because they see the therapist or the behavioral health clinician in your practice as an extension of you. It's powerful for you because patients are getting total care right in your practice. So once you have it, I'm going to tell you, you're not going to want to let it go. You will not imagine what you did before you had a mental health professional in your practice. I think the big question comes, how do you pay for this? And we have to advocate with payers that this is important and that the outcomes are better and it's less expensive in the long haul. If you don't have a patient going to the emergency room for chest pain and palpitations when it's really an anxiety panic attack, 
the treatment's different and they don't need an extensive cardiac workup. Her last and parting thought was that psychologists have been ready for this for a long time and they're just waiting for us to invite them in. So if you have an opportunity to explore having mental health professionals in your practice, go for it and work with payers to see if you can reimburse and support that role. It's a huge investment, but the return on investment is enormous. Thank you again for spending time listening today. There'll be several references in the show notes for you to look at. As always, I appreciate your time. I know you're really busy, but I hope that these episodes will give you a little bit more insight into ways that we can address the behavioral health needs and emotional needs of our patients and know that we don't have to go it alone. So I hope you have a great day and tune in and share. See you back next week. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and welcome all feedback, ideas, and suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.